One ring to rule them all. One ring to find them. One Aslan ring to rule them all. Lion. One the ring to lion. find them. The great lion. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. The wheel of time turns and ages come and pass. Books from Earth, a podcast. Relive your favorite books of fantasy, sci-fi, and apocalyptic stories. Yes, there are lots of spoilers. The spoiling is constant. Yes, there can be adult content. We are adults making content. Spoilers, adult content, books from Earth. Time to relive a favorite book. Welcome to the Books from Earth podcast, episode three, featuring the 1968 Dragonflight by Anne McCaffrey. Dragonflight, which was two separate novellas when first published, one Anne, the Hugo, and the Nebula. She was the first woman to win either. And she won both with this book. To date, it has spawned 22 additional novels. Some she co-authored with her son Todd, and a ton of fandom materials and activities. Dragon Rider is a timeless fantasy series. Anne McCaffrey passed away in 2011, so we hope to honor her and Dragonflight in Episode 3 of Books from Earth. I'm joined by my fellow Books from Earth podcasters, Lou. Hey, guys. Maureen. Hey, everybody. And Jack. Greetings, Earth people. And Jason is on tech. But first, let's go back and revisit what this book is about. Millennia after Earthlings colonized the planet of Pern, humankind there has fallen back into a medieval agrarian case system where dragon riders living in cliffside cave systems called wares provide protection. And the local holds support the wares, growing food and producing supplies. But that societal structure has crumbled because the threat has not appeared for over 400 years. And as the generations wax on, they've come to resent the dragon riders and the tithing the now seemingly antiquated case system requires. What threat is there? Well, as the stories go, every so often, a silvery thread would rain down on Pern destroying any organic life it touches, and rendering cropland infertile. Deadly silvery thread that migrates from a neighboring red planet and falls through Pern's atmosphere. And what do dragons have to do with it? Because their fire, ability to be airborne, and ability to teleport make them the ultimate thread-destroying beings. Falar, an aspiring leader and writer of the highest-ranking male dragon type, a bronze dragon, is in search for the next werewoman, a woman who will impress a soon-to-be-hatched female dragon, and that in turn will repopulate the were. Falar believes a threadfall is imminent. He has researched ancient records indicating past multi-century intervals like the one Pern is currently experiencing. His peers mock him, but he knows he must find a werewoman of great strength and that he must become the were-leader by her side. Will he find her? Will thread fall again? Will the hold support the dragon riders in time? Will the dragon riders shake off their rust and save the planet? If so, how? And more importantly, when? When? Because their salvation lies in a mystery of the past. The sudden and unexplained disappearance of all the other wares over 400 years ago. Yes, at one time, Pern had several wares. But at the start of Dragonflight, there's only one. And that's not enough to protect the planet. Well, this is the world of Pern, everybody. What is the coolest thing about this world? 
this planet that humans colonized, we don't know how long ago yet, but apparently a long time in the past. I, uh, I, I personally thought that the description of the wares was super cool, just the way the dragons got together and the dragon riders lived there in their cave system and the way they were described was super fun. That's one thing I thought was cool. Anybody else? Yeah, there was a – thanks, Josh. There were a lot of things that I particularly liked about the world building in um, this book. Number one, I liked how the dragons couldn't naturally flame. They had to eat the rocks in order for it to be able to – for them to flame. Like, I just thought that, that was a really neat touch. But then the other thing that I really love is the time travel time travel aspect of it. It's so neat, and, it, like, we'll talk about it later when we talk about the themes, but, man, I just – Anywhere where you can incorporate time travel into a story and make it really, really good, that just makes me so happy. I haven't read any of the further books in this series, but I hope that that's something that, that they get to explore more. For sure, yeah. The the book really introduces this time travel concept after kind of laying out all these puzzle pieces and the time travel really starts to put cause and effect together and this whole this whole history that's been happening that has happened. Anybody else? Anything else cool about Pern? The dragons, of course. I mean <laughs> <laughs> that's the, I think that's the coolest thing about about Pern to me was the dragons, the uh the telepathic ability. I love that these animals can talk to you. And like they're these humongous, dangerous creatures but they they are uh they can talk they you know they can but they can only talk to that one person you know the one person that you bonded with i love that it took me back when you know the last two books we like talked about you know were like you know in this world you know what i mean and when i grew i grew up like reading about dragons and so it kind of took me back a little bit to that you know when i was younger reading these books about dragons and stuff. So it was cool. I loved it, you know? Yeah, any uh, the dragons obviously are front and center in, in this story. Anne offers this really intimate, lifelong bond with the dragon rider and the dragon that happens at impression. This, you know, when that dragon comes out of the egg and it you know, feebly walks out of its shell and looks around at the various candidates that have been placed and – the candidates and the dragons sort of approach each other and until they, they have a moment. And at that moment, impression takes place, and there's a lifelong empathetic telepathic bond between rider and dragon. No doubt what a cool experience that would be. Anybody else have anything, Jack? Yeah, my for me, the most coolest part of the book, the world-building aspects of the book, were is the moment of imprint that you were talking about. You know? the way a duck will imprint on the first creature it sees, you know. I didn't look it up, but I'm willing to bet that Anne McCaffrey probably, you know, we know she was a mother. You mentioned that. I don't know how old her children are, but when my oldest child was born, it was, you know, this magical connection I felt immediately. And that's what it reminded me of, that unshakable love and understanding and empathy and throughout the book when lessa throughout the book she's the the doting the she's the helicopter parent who can't <laughs> get away from her 
offspring and is running down the hall and running into the room and being connected and being all neurotic. And that felt was great. So that was to me the, the coolest part. I also wanted to mention that in this world, they're experiencing an interval. Uh, and the, an interval is, is a long distance of time, long length of time between one thread fall and another thread fall. What a great point to start a story, I thought, was not in the action, not with the action being imminent, but in this sort of in-between time where there's a lot of uncertainty and society is getting restless and all that kind of thing. And so in this world, there are these periods of times kind of cyclically that occur where people start to question the current structure and the current part of society and and you know, all it takes is some thread fall to snap everybody back into place. <laughs> um, uh, so I was trying to think if I was a dragon rider, which, of course, I think I would want to be a dragon rider if I was in the story because I'd want that bond with the dragon for sure. It just sounds great. I don't know if I'd be a helicopter parent, but maybe I am somewhat in real life. So anyway, and I was trying to think of what color would I be because the, the dragons are sort of ranked. Bronze <laughs> is the highest male dragon, and then I think blue – no, brown. Brown is next. And blue and then I think green. Green is last. And they don't go too much detail of, of that in this book. But I was trying to think, would I be bronze? Of course I want to think of myself as bronze dragon, or would I impress a brown dragon? Anyway, anybody anybody think that they know where they would fall if they were a candidate and a dragon was impressing them where where would you be? It's time to be honest. Like I know we all want to be bronze or or gold. What do you think? Anybody anybody a strong feeling? Well, as I am the sole female in the podcast, <laughs> that was a I get I get to be queen. <laughs> That's one of the things that I was thinking as I was reading the book. We find out we find out about bronze, we find out about brown, but we don't know too much more about the green and the blue, other than the greens are like randy all the time and i would really love to find out more about the dragons themselves like what and they do they mention that each of the dragons has a different type of personality and i would love to find out more about that and especially reading future books because i just the series is clearly going places with the world building and i want to find out like do women get to ride dragons other than queens? Like, that would be really cool. I would love to fly on, like, a brown dragon in battle. That would be really, really cool. But at least as far as the first book goes, I got to be gold. Anybody else? Anybody else get get a feeling for where they fall in this hierarchy? Well, my ego tells me bronze, you know. <laughs> um, of course, I got to be bronze, you know. And it partly is because... They're like the second largest dragon, right? Next to and the queens. The queens are the largest. and Next yeah. to the queens. Bronze are the, <laughs> bronze are the largest dragon, you know? And I, I like their role in how they fight. Of course, it's just the prestige, to be honest with you. But I probably belong to the, uh, the brown dragons, too. So, <laughs> you know, who knows? Well, the bronze writers have a lot more work to do. I mean, it's, they, they kind of like they kind of like lead people, and they're they're in charge of their wing, you know, a group of dragons, and they kind of have like people who are loyal to them, and then there's like rivalry between the 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 bronze. You gotta you gotta kind of put up with a lot of stuff if you want to go bronze. That's sort of the that's that's the downside. Yeah, that is 
the downside. But you know what? Um, they, you know, I think that the bronze. I don't know. I don't know where I was going with that thought. To be honest with you, <laughs> uh, I, I don't know. I I like the bronze. I, I mean, they're they like you could, you could like the bronze man. Me too. I mean, you know? hey, he gets to mate with the queen. Yeah, exactly. They get to mate with the queen. You know? No, Lou. No. <laughs> <laughs> Well, if I could catch you, <laughs> that's the whole point, right? <laughs> I have to be able to catch you. Yeah. You have no choice, dragons. you know, when the fastest <laughs> dragon gets the queen. Yeah, you don't have a choice. In this world. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll talk about that when we talk about themes. I'm really excited. But yeah, keep going. Sorry. <laughs> so my, my comment, Josh, on what dragon i would be on i don't know i would love i of course prefer to be a dragon rider than a drudge uh which is the lowest form on the uh, lowest ranking person on their caste system uh but what i am keyed into is and we can save this if you know you tell me for when the time is right if we're going to get to it is on the themes this book is filled with ranking and caste system and a return to tradition and tradition saving a society from decay. And I think that the rankings of the dragons fit right within the rest of that theme. And that's what I was locked into. Not which one I would be imprinted with, but more that the author's almost beating us over the head with, with a return to tradition and a caste system. That's right, she is, and it is kind of there, – there's no doubt that we'd all want to prefer to be dragon riders than, than drudges. Well, maybe. I don't know. I mean the drudges get to live in these towns and the holds, and they get to have their life, and it seems it's almost you know more a little bit more natural and a bit more free than uh, you are if you're a dragon rider where you're almost kind of in a military type thing. Um, so what, what – there is this caste system. Say, say, Jack, say a little bit more about – how Anne McCaffrey was kind of beats us over the head with bringing back this tradition. All right. So the way I think of it is, and felt about it was what if this book was written today where there's an unknown threat or maybe a known threat. There is a heroine, a diamond in the rough out there in a disguise, hiding herself for whatever reason. And she has her reasons, which I'll probably touch on the people at the top of the caste system need to find this Cinderella to change their story. How would that, to change the, the path of history, how would that be written today? And there are books like that today. You know, there's Katniss Everdeen. There are, there's the Twilight series. And what's different about the first Pern book and today's modern female character? And if I look at it, what would be different? Well, she would have more than her cunning to rely on, right? Because, you know, she wouldn't just be cunning. She'd be like an app shit kicker in a bunch of different ways, which she probably is, but they don't show it. She would buck the system, which she pro- which in this book, she certainly does. There would probably be a love triangle, right? Like maybe Fax's nephew, who's like the one nice one, and she can't be close to him because he's part of the overthrowers that overthrew her bloodline bloodline being a big deal in this book 
right? Like who, like it's the blue bloods who need to get back up on top, not the up and comers. If it were written today, it would be an up and comer that needed to fix everything, not like royal blood, right? That it's like not an American idea, you know. And the author is Irish American, and it says Irish American. I'm technically Irish American, but I don't really view myself that way, you know. And I don't know how Irish and McCaffrey is. But even the Irish were not into being under the yoke, you know, under the the heel of the British royal bloods, you know. So I thought it was just kind of interesting there. And then she would develop a relationship with this, with Flar, and she would be more in control of it. She wouldn't be the fairer sex if it was written today. And I think the dragon riders would be more poetic and artistic and deep and maybe something in them would need that could only be unlocked by a woman and it would be just such a different story so is that kept coming to me at least in my my, as i view it right i mean someone can see it differently it was so clear to me that my sensibilities and books sci-fi books written in after 2000 don't rely on royal blood that's caste system they don't have you know a ranking of the best to the worst and the best is actually the best right like you know there's no irony here in in these books it's just you know this guy who seems like really cocky and feels like he should be better than everyone actually is the dragons that seem like they should be better and more capable actually are the people who live in squalor generally speaking, just keep getting kicked, you know, at least so far. And there could be revolutions coming. And that's, I think, the word I'll go with is there's no revolution here. And I'm so used to seeing and reading books that have a revolution, not a return to tradition. To me, that beat me over the head. And I don't know how everyone else feels about it. And I don't mean to go super deep on you guys. And maybe you're like, wow, this, you know, Jack's really getting lost in this stuff. But it was, um, it was, for me, great story, great dragon caves, interesting threads. I'd like to learn more about them. I hope there's a true bad guy out there. I'm not sure if it's just a natural occurrence of a thread or if it's a bad guy. I would like to see a bad guy, you know, but in the story, there isn't one yet. There's no revolution. It's a return to tradition that saves everybody. And that's just not the world I expect anymore. Yeah, that's, that is not the, that's not the modern thought. Of what right. makes a good story. This book is fifty. It's fifty years old. Fifty years old, and so Anne, as a woman, is writing this book of returning, returning to tradition. I really like that you picked up on that. And along with that comes place women play in that, and you know, sort of males are masculine and females are feminine, and that's we don't see that in as much in the stories today either. I think that's where you're going with, with part of that about how if this was a book written today, the male characters would be sort of more poetic and more deep and a little bit, you know, a little bit more grounded in something, I think more, some more like wisdom rather than, you know, bravado or, or something like that. And what struck me about this book is that a woman wrote this book and sort of presented this sort of not a utopia, but, but a society that was better off, you know, with males being, masculine and females being feminine there wasn't really a choice 
there's there is just stuff in this book that would not go over today at all. I see Maureen shaking. Maureen. They so there was and it was really glossed over. And what I really particularly liked about this book, and it really threw me for a loop, was that the really important stuff was hidden in less than a paragraph. So there's one point where Falar was talking to it's in, and it's at the very end where he's talking to the people that have come from the past, all, all the wares and the wear leaders and their dragons, and they're all coming in. And he says, and it's one sentence, he says, because we went back in time to get them to come forward in time and we cut ourselves down to one queen, we put ourselves in the position where women had to be solely responsible for repopulation and it like it that's not what he said that's but that is the gist of it and it was one sentence and I was like oh that is so cool like in leading into the time travel stuff I like how she kind of explores the we are the makers of our own destiny in all of the places that we think we are right we are wrong because the wear leaders from the past come in and they're just like, oh, yeah, of course the queens fight. The queens have their own squad. They go in and they do their own special thing that's like going in and taking care of stuff. And, you know, Flar gets to find out, oh, hey, I'm wrong. But he finds out he's right and he's wrong. He's right because, yes, that was the they needed a queen to be able to do her stuff. but like the other part of that was he put himself in that position. And I thought that that was just the neatest thing. It was so cool. And exploring that in my head when I was sitting there reading it, it kind of just blew my mind. And it got me wondering, like, there have been a lot of times in my life where I have set myself up to be in the position where I end up like screwing myself over. And you know, I end up having all of these old ideas and being completely wrong about stuff. So that was just something I thought was really neat. I was definitely struggling in the beginning reading the book. I'm like, oh my God, these women are only here to make babies. And I really had a problem with that. And be nurses. And be couple. nurses. Yeah. Yes. And yeah. clean. We forgot about clean. Yeah. And cook. <laughs> And cook. <laughs> and I, and basically, know, it's, I, I got the impression that they had to basically sleep with whoever wanted to sleep with them. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, if your dragon caught the queen and you are imprinted on that queen, guess what? You've, lo- you've lost choice. Yeah. Yeah. But it didn't used to be like that. Like, that... The whole system generated itself by them going back in time and saying, hey, we need you 400 years from now. And how different would it have been if they had not gone back in time? They would have had the wares. This, it would not have been a return to tradition. Like the tradition itself, they created their own tradition by going back in time and grabbing everybody from the past. Yeah, yeah, that was quite a uh, a momentous shift from 
this sort of dilapidated wear that had a lot of infighting and, you know, one queen, newly born queen to hopefully be their salvation to this four or five, I forget how many it was, six wares came came back from the past, came from the past into the future and bringing, bringing with them an improvement. You know, things hadn't gotten better over the 400-year interval. Technology had been lost. The society was kind of losing its its polish. The case system was breaking down. And this return to tradition, tradition was really a, a great good thing, and it was, it was a better – better situation i don't know if that means that falar stopped shaking lessa i mean that's kind of what i really <laughs> want to know because all those scenes in the book where falar is shaking lessa whenever she's whatever upset whenever she's not acting right whenever she's not you know in his view not acting right or thinking straight he shakes her and i'm like where where have i seen that is that like gone with the wind scarlet o'hara you know i mean you know nobody <laughs> Oh my gosh, I couldn't believe it, and yet it's it's so repeated throughout the book. So, Josh, that you I'm brought, like, what do I do with that? You brought this book to the table. What what made you bring this book to the table? When was the last time you read it, and how do you feel it's aged? Okay, so I read this book when I was either middle school or high school. Okay, Probably middle school, and at the what time, what was that, Josh? Josh? <laughs> two what, years like, ago 1984 <laughs> somewhere around the mid 80s jump jump by van halen was number one on the top 40 there you go, Josh. There you go. <laughs> yes indeed the song was played every night the the what i remembered about the book was really just the coolness of the planet like i just i just thought it was this kind of this wear system just i, I remembered that and I didn't remember much else. There's been a lot of books between then and now. Um, I didn't even remember the key pivotal moment in the plot when Lessa discovers tri- time travel. So I don't. But today, when reading it this time, I experienced it a lot differently, for sure. I mean, I didn't pick up on a lot of the masculine and feminine roles that are present in this book uh, at all when I was in middle school. <laughs> Reading my geeky fantasy books, <laughs> but that I mean, that's kind of what what made this book so interesting was the interplay between Falar and Lessa playing out there, and it was it was great because it wasn't your traditional romance at all. I mean, it wasn't a modern romance, that's for sure. Uh, to me, there's another possible theme here. Well, hold has, on, hold on, hold on. Let me. Can I stay on the subject for a bit? Yeah. Okay. Go ahead. So you recommended for those listening to the podcast, we're taking turns recommending books. This one was Josh's, right? You can figure out by who recommended a book by who does the intro. You, Don't tell you, the secret, Jack. Well, I'm going to let everybody man. in. This is what it's like behind the curtain. So when you recommended this book, you recommended it based off of an experience you had reading it 30 plus years ago. Right. And you want to, and, and, the hope is like, hey, let's resurface this sucker. We can all enjoy it together. Yeah. So when you reread it, did you feel it was dated, that it needed an update, or were you able to read it the whole time with like a some empathy for it was written 50 years ago? Yeah, no. It, I read it and experienced the language of the book as being old school. It's just it's I just don't feel like I don't read books like that anymore. Yeah. There's a lot more action. There's a there's the blending of roles, traditions and all of that are really different. You teed it up 
better than I could earlier, and that to me makes the book almost even more interesting because it's like from another time. No doubt. Can I jump in here? Yeah, of course. Because there, there were a couple times where it consistently ends up on some of my favorite authors' best novels in in their top reading lists, and I I was very excited to read it. And frankly, I loved the book. And part of it is it it made me. There were points where I was like, man, I am so angry right now because they are behaving this way. But what I'm most excited about now is to go back and reread the book, knowing how it ends, knowing what happens, knowing that because so much of it is from Falar's point of view. And there's one point where he talks about, you know, Lessa having the experience where she gets shaken up pretty badly. And he says it's going to he won't she won't obey him now. But it will give her a little bit of caution. And he you can very clearly see that he thinks that she should obey him, but he knows she's not going to. And knowing now that he's wrong at the end of the novel, it makes going back and rereading it that much more interesting. It's very um, there's definitely a lot of defined gender roles in the novel. But I think the whole point of it ultimately is that we are the ones that impose that and it doesn't have to be that way. Yeah, it doesn't doesn't have to be that way. And Maureen, Maureen's dropping the mic. Yeah. What's this moment of so silence? Josh, when you <laughs> when you introduced the book about dragons, did you know that it would bring out my feminist side and that Maureen would be like dropping major knowledge and wisdom on us? No, no, I could only hope for such great results. I would say this book was misogynistic. A misogynist is almost like um, – I read – I actually had to look the word up just to make sure. But it's more of like um, – misogyny is more like, like, a deep, like a hatred for women. I think the roles don't work today, but I don't get the impression in this book women are hated. Uh, there's, I think, definitely sexism and that, all that kind of stuff. But no. It, I, women are um, – They're not uh, hated. No. So be celebrated ultimately, you know. I mean, Lessa basically saves the planet and the saves queen. everybody. And, the and then we find out. Yeah, yeah, and then we find out at the end where the 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 queens have their own wing. Yeah, they have their own wing. They have their own wing, and they have you know, and, uh, queen queen the queen queen. <laughs> and ultimately, I think that's the important point: is it shows that. You know, there is the sexism in the culture and it's ingrained and it's ingrained for like, I hate to say it, but a reason, you know, but ultimately it is shown very clearly at the end of the book that that notion is the the main character, the protagonist is shown that he is wrong and that is really, really important. So it all came down to me on how it ended and I I marked it in my notes when I figured out how it was going to end. It was toward like three quarters of the way through part three where I was like, oh, this book actually isn't sexist. It isn't misogynistic. What is going to happen is they are going to 
like I figured it out. I was like, oh, all the wares are going to come up and we're going to see the queens in battle and we're going to find out all this stuff. And that's how it's going to end. I am so pleased. <laughs> that I had the same thing. I, I until I had that realization, I don't know when I had it, probably right around the same time. I was like, oh, I can like this book. It like I can like this. This is cool. I see where this is going. Where where a modern book would be different is the author would have been telegraphing their punches on the first page. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you kind of have to hang in there with this one for a little bit and until yeah. it turns its corner. Um, you know, I I like a lot of the characters in this book. Jack, you earlier said that there wasn't like a bad guy. I mean, there's Lord Fax. Um, he's a bad guy, but he's sort of a caricature of a bad guy, and um, he's disposed of pretty pretty early on um, in the story, and then he he becomes not not very relevant for the rest of the story and what this book's really about. It's, so I, I mean, I I kind of want to ha- hang out with everybody except for in this book except for Lord Fax. Uh, I thought Falar was just super interesting, you know. He was a scholar, you know. He More was researching things. Um, <laughs> Fenor, you know, if if I wanted to get a a tour of Pern, Fenor would be great. I'd be like, Fenor, let's go see the Southern Hemisphere. Let's go check it out. And he'd be like, Yeah, let's go. You know, he would be really fun. Um, Fenor is Falar's, you know, wing leader or what? It, what is he second yeah. in command of the wing? And and there's this, you know, we were introduced to a, a Master Harper, Master Robitan, and just as a preview, there's like a few books on the Master Harpers in the whole series, and we get to meet him and find out that he's actually can play a pivotal role in society, and he's a very entertaining person. So a lot of kind of interesting, iconic, um, archetypal characters in this book. Anybody else see anybody if they liked and thought was a cool character? I would love to hang out with Lessa. I think she and I would get into a whole lot of trouble. It would just be so fun. <laughs> That she's like she and I just both have a complete disregard for our own safety and well-being. <laughs> well, <laughs> what comes first is, hey, can we do that? <laughs> I think we should try. <laughs> so, Let's find I mean, out. Yeah, yeah, I would love to hang out with her. I just think we would. I would have a really good time hanging out with Lessa and I would not want to hang out with Falar. He's too obnoxious. I would hit him by the time we were hanging out for an hour. But I, shake. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. If he laid his hands on me, I'd break his nose. <laughs> but Fenor, I would, I think I would like to hang out with Fenor. He's like, and I think they mentioned that they were half brothers, but to me he's like the more stable older brother who is just a little bit more like world knowledge thing. I can't get the word right now. But. <laughs> world knowledge thing. He's, he's definitely more easygoing. And yeah. he's, you know, he's, he's sort of up to kind of going along with what your agenda is, you know? Mm-hmm. Also, I would want to hang out with um, Lytol just to – Get a little bit more information on what happens after your dragon dies, because he that would just be an interesting, interesting thing to study. And I I hate to put it so antiseptically, but it would be because in the book, he's kind of ostracized. He's ostracized by the wares. He's ostracized by 
the towns and he's somebody with a very interesting story so i would like to hang out with him and get to know his story a little bit more just to find out like what's the difference between being bonded with a dragon and not being bonded with a dragon so maureen have you ever like seen in movies or in books where a soldier has his foot his leg amputated but it still feels like his foot itches Yes. Right, that whole phantom limb thing. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what I thought of when I when they did Latal. Like mm-hmm. it, he no longer has this the other half of of him, and he's now got a phantom limb that causes him pain, and it's not even there. And he's a and hero. He is a hero, and he also gets he no longer has a place in this rigid caste society, and so he's alone. He's outside the stepladder of society. Yeah, that's a good comparison. But he he gets brought back into the fold. He's given a role, and he embraces it. And he embraces this role even though it causes him suffering because his new role role requires him to go to the wear and you know bring stuff and see dragons, see dragon riders enjoying their dragons. And that's he, his phantom. That's his phantom limb. He has he to face his phantom scratch. limb, and he does it. Of all the characters in the book. To me, he's the one who deliberately suffers for the benefit of others, like more, more than more more than anyone. Didn't he have to ride a dragon to the where one time? One of yeah. the last times, he were, yeah, he he rode another dragon, you know, and he was suffering the whole time, you know. And I think it was Lesser who was she was like, "Oh my God, is he riding another another dragon? What's that about? I wonder how he is." You know, she was asking all those questions. Yeah, very interesting characters. We don't see him much in the book, but he definitely brought some depth to the to the novels and what was happening there. So can I lay out a story and see if you guys would think this is an interesting character that you guys would like? Sure. Right. Okay. Give it a shot. There's taxation without representation. And the taxing authorities come by and they take your finest women up into the mountains and you never see them again. And occasionally they come and they take your best cattle, and they don't pay you for it. They just take it. And you don't know what's going on up there, but apparently 400 years ago, we really needed these people. But I don't know. It doesn't seem like we need them now. And you've worked your whole life to build something, and you've watched your neighboring towns fall into decay. And you have a vision of greatness, and little by little, it starts to eat at you. And eventually... You just can't take it anymore. These people come, they tax you, you don't get a vote in what they're doing. They just take your finest women and your finest cattle and your best melons and apples and they leave and you can't take it anymore. So you decide, I am about enough. I'm going to, I'm going to grow this, this into this vision I have for myself. And you take over the nearby five towns and you install you know, your own people there who kind of roll up to you, right? And you're shrugging off tradition. Is that a story of a person that you think is interesting? Would you want to read that story? Does he sound like a good guy or a bad guy? That's interesting. That book actually was written, and I think it's called Les Miserables by Victor Hugo. (laughs) Do you hear the people sing? Yes. So would you think that that guy's a good guy or a bad guy? 
It depends on who wins. History is written by the victors. Exactly. Well, what do you think? Well, I think Maureen's right. History is written by the victors, but I think we, we, we ignore certain points. It's like, you know, these guys were ignoring tradition, you know. This was this wasn't a tax. It was a well, it was a tax, but it was a traditional tax. And the stories were forgotten because it was over 400 years, you know. And uh, they they forgotten where they came from, completely forgotten where they came from, you know. But if you put it in that situation, yeah, you know, it's like you know, who wants to be taxed like that, you know? Fax sure didn't. No, he did not. It, of course, we we do get the recollection from Lessa of how Fax won over won over the other villages, and it was by massacring by people. massacre. I, I so agree. that you, that part wasn't in your hypothetical. <laughs> <laughs> which, hypothetical. Which if you take out if you take out the massacring and let's say this this character does it through just politics through it through politics through improvements, through making things better, then you have a much more compelling conflict between the the new way of potentially new way of doing things versus the old tradition. That would have been much more tricky. For the record, I do not think Lord Fax is a good guy. But, <laughs> he's a brave heart. But I, I do. Jack wants to hang out with Fax. Yeah, I want to hang <laughs> out with Fax. Dude. Have him just like rip out my fingernails. Ugh. Well, I don't come from royal blood. Mine might be fine if I sucked up to him. (laughs) (laughs) All right. On that note, how about we take a break for a word from our sponsors? This episode is brought to you by the Flink Paleo Exotic Pet Boarding, Grooming, and Daycare Center. Flink provides your pet with the ultimate boarding, grooming, or daycare experience. At their clean, bright, open daycare, your special buddy will get plenty of healthy exercise and social interaction. In turn, you get the comfort of knowing that your lovable companion is active, safe, happy, and well cared for all day while you're at work or out of town. Flink's philosophy, plenty of exercise and fun for your paleo exotic pet. Here's the deal. Flink doesn't think dragons should be confined to a roost all day, so they limit roosts to sleeping in private times only. The rest of the time is for eating, exercising, and engaging in the pastimes that dragons enjoy. Like breathing fire, screeching, brooding, sleeping on and guarding priceless treasure troves, tormenting local villages, and devouring livestock. Your dragon is always returned to you, healthy, happy, and with a full belly, which means you can relax with your pet knowing your special friend has gotten all the exercises and social interaction he or she needs. Unlike most paleo-exotic pet daycares, additional playtime does not cost extra and your dragon receives tons of activity and care for one inclusive price. Flink is a completely transparent dragon daycare and boarding facility. Everything is open and visible at all times, and you can stop by during office hours without calling first. If you're looking for a dragon daycare, they'll be glad to show you around, provided, of course, that you sign a hold harmless letter. After all, dragons are feral, which means they're unpredictable and you could be eaten. You will be impressed with the adorable little villages stocked with real-life people your dragon can torment, blown away by the fields of terror-stricken livestock, and delighted by the treasure troves your dragon can sleep on and guard. We're talking mounds of gold bullion 
and piles of loose diamonds and gemstones. Your dragon will love it. You can also check Flink's webcams 24-7 to see what your dragon is up to when you're away. Flink also offers world-class grooming services, including talon clipping. Dragon nails grow quickly and can make your pet unable to land without destroying his or her perch. Think about how uncomfortable it would be to walk around with your claws curling into the pads of your feet. Most dragons need a nail trim every two to three months. Without training on fire drake anatomy, it can be very difficult to safely clip dragon nails. Improper restraint can and almost definitely will cause distress, which could injure your dragon and result in death of the pedicurist. All of Flink's dragon caretakers are certified paleo exotic animal veterinarians who use only the best tools, like the 360 Ranch Hand 20-inch chainsaw to clip the nails and the Kabuki 2600 Variable Speed Belt Sander to shape and shine the talons. The Flink Exotic Paleo Pet Boarding, Grooming, and Daycare Center knows dragons better than anybody. If you love your dragon, use Flink for all of your boarding, grooming, and daycare needs. Flank is the Books from Earth official paleo exotic pet boarding, grooming, and daycare provider. We just can't recommend anyone else. Check out Flink on the web by going to www.booksfromearth.com backslash Flink. Use our promo code BFE when you check out, and your dragon's first day will include one free bovine treat for your dragon. That's right. By entering our code at checkout, again, that's BFE, your dragon gets to eat one whole cow at no cost. Go check out Flink Paleo Exotic Pet Boarding, Grooming, and Daycare and tell them Books from Earth sent you. Now, back to the pod. All right, everybody, let's jump into casting. Uh, I, I didn't have a whole lot for this one. This was just tough cast. There's only, there's only a few characters I think we're just talking about. Okay, we're in Hollywood. We work in Hollywood. We're producers. We've been handed the rights to Dragonflight. We get to cast. Anybody got any really strong folks they, they feel like they want to call in? Or are we going to be doing more of, you know, just putting it out there and see who comes to us? Lou, did you, I, did you come up with anybody? I had one for Flar. I, I don't even know how to say it. Flar? Um, <laughs> Flar. Flar. Yeah. I had, because he's such a, you know, I feel like he's always, you know, standing straight up, kind of like, to, you know, he, he, he's moral. You know, um, I got Henry Henry Cavill. He was Superman. You know, <laughs> so that's how I pictured him. Like this, you know, this just a clean cut type of guy. Doesn't do anything wrong. He's hard. You know, just a clean cut guy. You know, so has the black locks hanging over his eyes. He has to always it, get out of his face. Yes. And he does a stern look really yeah. well. Yeah, he does. So that's, who, you know, the new Superman, you know. That's who, that's where I picked. Good for one. Flora. Yeah. And for Lessa, I don't know if I'm jumping ahead. I had Claire Danes. You know who she is? Sure. Homeland. Who doesn't? Homeland. Who's always, you know, she's always, you know, she's always doing something reckless. She has a little crazy eyes, but I think that's just for Homeland. But, well, Lessa, Lessa is a, has an ability that makes her... A little bit on that sort of psycho psychic spectrum. Exactly. Her ability is, you know, great. She, she keeps it a secret, and it kind of puts her in living this double life. And I think Claire Danes exactly. does a great job with all that. Yeah. Nice pull there, Lou. You know, yeah. you could play that discombobulated jazz music for both of them. 
<laughs> yes, you can. So I only had one, and it is the Dragon Riders in general. And I think Hollywood would cast, you know, like when you see like a, something on the Sci-Fi Channel or on Netflix where you don't know the actors and they're just like young, hot people, right? Yeah. <laughs> right. So I think that would be where this would go is just like young, hot people you've never seen before. But, and I'm afraid when we pick our actors, I'm always going to be like picking for like the Gen X baby boomer types because I don't know a lot of modern actors, right? Although I do a little research so I don't sound terrible, but this one's going to date me. And in the Karate Kid, the original one, <laughs> Karate Kid. Wow. hold on, there's the Cobra Kai, right? And it's those, all those cocky dudes. Put him in a body bag. Right? <laughs> I picture, yeah. Yeah. I picture the dragon riders being just like them, just cocky and think they're better than everyone else. Wow, the Cobra Kai. <laughs> wow. And they and they and they go into town, you know, taxation without representation, and just basically take all the stuff they want. No apology. Sweep the leg. You know. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because 420 years ago. There was a environmental disaster. Therefore, today I will come and take all the best women and best cattle. Put them in a body bag. Yeah, that 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 totally works. That actually works. I I think if you go that way, then you have to like cast the whole thing completely different than what I was thinking. But I could totally see that working. You just have to go all in on that one. <laughs> you know, uh, less. So of... my go ahead, my. My casting wasn't actually the people, it was the location. Because as I was, like, picturing this all in my head, the location seemed to be the most, the one that was clearest in my mind. And I I don't know if anybody else will agree with this, but I kept thinking this would be really nicely shot if it was in, like, the fjords of Norway. And that's where we could put the cliffs, and that's where we could put the bowls, and that's how you could build the the castles and the wares at. Well, it's not it's not a castle, but the ware carve it into the rock that way, and you would have a beautiful location that is imposing and mag like giants, and but at the same time it would be beautiful and and sterile and cold and all of those that sweeping landscape that she kind of described so well in the book. I like that. I like that. Yeah, we see in the book a lot of rock, you know, and I just those fjords and those cliffs have breathtaking rockscapes. I I was trying to figure out what one thing about this is whether or not it could be movie or a TV series. And I think because of the setting requirements to be so dramatic and because you're going to have a lot of dragons, which you're going to have to CGI, it's, I think it's got to be movie to pull off that kind of quality. You know, there's nothing like sort of cheap CGI episode after episode in, in TV, which is why I think this makes for a good movie. Anybody have any view on that? Should we should we make it a TV series or should we do movie? I'm going to... I'm in a second movie because there is no subplot and the whole structure of the book is very wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. Like, and that is a double entendre. Ha ha ha. But at any rate, I like my bad jokes, (laughs) but they like, it's just very straightforward, very fast. You could put it into a TV series, but you would have to extract so much 
it's, you know, it's like plot point, plot point, plot point, plot point. And all of the big mic drops that she does are done so quickly and so, like, hammered home. The only speechifying that we got in the whole book was when the Master Harper was telling all the people how wrong they were, you know, and everything else was just quick and fast. It's much more of a movie setting for me. So I'm I'm with you on that one, Josh. I'm with you on that because of Maureen's points. But he, if you did it as a as a show, you the first episode ends when Flar kills facts. You have an episode that ends when she travels back in time. You have an episode ending after the imprint. You have an episode ending when the group goes down to the southern hemisphere, right? So there are points where you can end an episode, but it would be it would be like a show on like USA Network or TNT because they they wouldn't be like doing or completely rewritten to to have subplots and lots of money. So there are, it's definitely got a, um, it's written with nice endings and t- like, I think it was introduced in like maybe th- in three parts. Right. And so you've got that feature going on with hard endings and cliffhangers, but it would be so much money to do it right. And so much rewriting to do it right. That I think it's gotta be a movie. And what rating should this movie be? <laughs> R. It wouldn't be. It would be PG-13. PG-13. Yeah, but if you wanted to do it like the book, it would it would have to be R, because there would be blood, like blood, and it would be so shocking to see five sixths of, of the movie be outdated gender roles. You you wouldn't be able to make it PG-13. The, the the gender roles would be rated R. That's what you're saying. <laughs> they're so bad. They're so offensive. Yes. <laughs> we shouldn't let today's youth see them. Right. Not my daughter. No. <laughs> Gotta have parental guidance on, on these yeah, gender not, roles. Not why? Daughter. Why? Why is why is that man shaking her? Why isn't she doing anything? <laughs> well, well why are shaking all the her women because made? she's being she's being shrill, honey, and she needs to be shaken. <laughs> Am I gonna get shaken? Ah. One of my favorite lines was when he's like, "Yeah, you had that feeling because you got drunk last night." <laughs> and it was when she, it was when she was existing in two periods at the same time. And I'm like making, I, I figured that part out later, but I noted it later on. I'm like, I know this is gonna come back to bite him in the ass. <laughs> yeah. Nice. So there's a lot of great little scenes in this book. We've been, we've been bringing up what what are some of the unforgettable key moments where for you it was like just great what what were, what were some of your favorite moments imprint ditto so this is when um the the queen egg is hatched the golden egg is hatched yeah oh i no my favorite part about that was um when the the first eggs were hatched with the boys like in watching the dragons make their way to the boys and the boys like getting torn up and like they're 10 and 11 and 12 and 
just being mauled by the dragons as the dragons are hatching and at the same time imprinting on these boys. I was like, oh, that's just nifty. That's nifty. Agreed. That's what I meant by the imprinting all the way through into the golden egg. Gotcha. I think for me, one of the unforgettable moments is when Lessa travels back in time and she realizes it's the day that Lord Fax took Uratha hold and she realizes why the why the that guard dog dragon never made a sound. Uh, she sees, you know, how the her ancestry home was being invaded. She she can't do anything. She can't interfere. She knows that. She knows she can't do anything about it. She's ho- just kind of hovering above, seeing it all. That was a really that was just a poignant moment in the book. Yeah, and in her that was my favorite moment. Yeah, and her participation is the cause of her own suffering, and she gets it, and it's awful. It's awful. Ah, so good. There were some also some parts of this book where, for me, it became kind of a um, fast burn. We've talked a little bit about slow burn, fast burn, and there was this. There's this whole sequence when Fenor is traveling back in time to the southern hemisphere, and he he keeps revisiting current day to make reports and. The, there's a tension and anxiety throughout all those scenes in that part of the book about is Fenor going to like see himself, his modern day self or his past self? Is he going to bump into himself in the hallway? Is this whole thing going to fall apart? And I found myself really flipping the pages through that part of the book. One of my – I love time travel when it's done like this, and one of my f- most favorite things was when Fenor – the latest possible timeline of Fenor came back before the mid timeline. So right as they decide, okay, we're going to send some people down to the Southern continent, the Fenor that has all the experience of the 10 years in the Southern continent comes back. And then a couple hours later, the one that's like, Oh, Hey, it's great. Comes back. That was delightful. Do you remember (laughs) what, the 10 year later, Fenor came back to talk about. It was a warning, right? It was, I, uh, wasn't he complaining about how Kylara was continually going back to watch herself and how it wasn't working. And yeah. Yeah. And they'd yeah, got 72 eggs or. Yeah. 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 That was good. It was good. Yeah. Yeah. Those were great scenes. I thought that whole thing was really very well done. Well, does anybody have a passage from this book that they want to read in? Oh, I have one. I have it queued up, so I can go. Go for it. He caught her arm and felt her body tense. He set his teeth, wishing, as he had a hundred times since Ramoth rose in her first mating flight, that Lessa had not been virgin, too. He had not thought to control his dragon-incited emotions. And Lessa's first sexual experience had been violent. It had surprised him to be first, considering that her adolescent years had been spent drudging for lascivious waters and soldier types. Eventually, no one had bothered to penetrate the curtain of rags and the coat of filth she had carefully maintained as a disguise. He had been a considerate and gentle bedmate ever since, but... Unless Ramoth and Minaminth were involved, he might as well call it rape. Yet he knew someday, somehow, 
he would coax her into responding wholeheartedly to his lovemaking. He had a certain pride in his skill, and he was in a position to persevere. Yeah, there you go, man. I know that's not supposed to be misogynistic based on what you gave us that definition. (laughs) But definitely not letting my girls read this story. (laughs) Yeah. All right. And McCaffrey, right? And McCaffrey. And McCaffrey. (laughs) Can I go with mine? Go ahead. Oblivious to the descending bronze dragons, oblivious to the presence of their riders, Lessa stood caressing the head of the most wonderful creature in all of Pern, fully prescient of troubles and glories, but most immediately aware that Lessa of Pern was werewoman to Ramoth, the golden, for now and forever. That's good. That's motherhood. I, I got one. It's kind of long, but all right, my golden love, she murmured. You have the reference. You know when I want to go, take me between Ramoth, between 400 turns. The cold was intense, even more penetrating than she had imagined. Yet it was not physical cold. It was the awareness of the absence of everything. No light, no sound, no touch. As they hovered long and longer in this nothingness, Lessa recognized full-blown panic of a kind that threatened to overwhelm her reason. She knew she sat on Ramoth's neck, yet she could not feel the great beast under her thighs, under her hands. She tried to cry out inadvertently and opened, to her, and opened her mouth to nothing, no sound. In her own ears, she could not even feel the hands that she knew she had raised to her own cheeks. I am here, she heard Ramoth say in her mind. We are together. And this reassurance was all that kept her from losing her grasp on sanity in that terrifying eon of unpassing, timeless nothingness. Oh, I got the tingles. That was great. (laughs) All right, well, that wraps up this episode of Books from Earth. Yay! Episode 3, Dragonflight. Thanks, everybody. We hope you enjoyed reliving this book with us. All right. Bye, guys. Bye. Josh, we can't hear you. Josh, we can't hear you. Are you muted? Are you flashing or not? Oh, man, I was flashing. Thanks.